Luke chapter number 19. And I'd like to begin reading at verse number 11. I'm just going to read three verses. We're going to begin or read the beginning of a parable. And I'm going to explain why we're not reading it in its entirety, uh, entirety here in a moment. The Bible says in verse 11, And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless your word tonight, Lord. I pray that through the power of the Holy Ghost, not through entertainment, not through emotion, but through the convicting and working of the Holy Spirit, you'd change lives tonight. Show us, Lord, lay our lives before the magnifying glass of your word and examine us and show us truth tonight. Lord, I know only the Holy Spirit can do that through your word and according to your will. So that's what we ask, Father. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I've preached on this truth and this thought before, but God burdened my heart with it once more. Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? I believe that he is, and I believe he's coming soon. And do you know that the Word of God has not left us without instructions as to what we're to do when we're waiting for our Lord to return? As you read this entire parable, or to read it in its entirety, you would find that God begins to teach us through this parable the importance of using what God has given us and living the life that He's blessed us with for His glory. Can can I make a few statements I hope will help you tonight? Isn't it sad that most people don't realize the value of life until it's almost all gone? Isn't it true that many times our youth bewitches us into believing that life is not as valuable as it is? I was thinking about this today, you know, and and I understand we've got people at at opposite ends of the spectrum age-wise on these properties tonight, and our young people have gone already to be taught, but, uh, you know, I I look at my little son, and I I look at uh, all the youth and all of the life that is within him, and you say, does he have a lot of life in him? Well, just wait till he gets cranky, and you find out that he does have a lot of life in him. And, uh, you know, so oftentimes we take that life for granted. It doesn't mean anything to us. We take our time for granted. Do you realize that this day that you've lived, you'll never get it back? Whatever you've done with it, it's settled, it's done, it's finished. You'll never get that time again. Do you realize that these years that we live, and I speak this mostly to those of us that have a little bit of youth uh, left in us, and you say, well, who is that? Well, I'm not going to say. I'm too respectful, amen. But those of us that have more of the road ahead of us than behind us, unless the Lord should come back or take us, A lot of times we just treat life so cheaply. I mean, we have an opportunity to do something for Jesus Christ. Something that's going to matter. Something that will change eternity. And so oftentimes people our age just squander those talents and that life that we're given, the time that we're given. We allow the distractions of this world to take us from our chief call and command, which is to be serving God and glorifying Him and reaching others with the gospel of Christ. And it's easy sometimes to live your life and not realize it's slipping away. These truths are taught throughout this chapter. But I want us to just focus on these three verses and really only two of them uh, tonight as we look at the command that is given us in light 
of the Lord's second coming. By, by way of introduction, I want you to notice verse 12 with me, because it gives us a little bit of context. It says, He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. I want to tell you tonight that this nobleman is none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, how do we know this? We know this, number one, by his description. He's called a nobleman. Now, you may say, wait a minute, preacher, there's other noblemen in the Bible that weren't the Son of God. And I realize that, but uh, this is what you might call circumstantial evidence. You see, by itself, it may not seem that strong. But you put a few things together and it becomes undeniable. And when I think about Christ as a nobleman, I thought about two ways that a person becomes noble. In their life. And the word nobleman used as a title denotes that a person comes from royal or special lineage. Can I say to you that there's never been anybody like the Son of God? As you study through the Word of God, you find that He could have come from the tribe of Benjamin, which was a favored tribe. He could have come from the tribe of Dan, which was a warfaring tribe. He could have come from the tribe uh, of the Levites, which was the priestly tribe. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You say, why is He that, preacher? Because Judah was the kingly tribe. That's the tribe from which all of the kings came. And Jesus Christ is a king, not just because of what he's done, but because of who he is. Uh, He is the seed of David and the root of David. Uh, It is his natural or his uh, right to the throne there in Israel. He is noble by birth. But not only in the sense of his heritage and lineage, but I would also say in the sense of his nature. Now, we've heard the term blue blood before. And that denotes someone that is of uh, special lineage. And what uh, the saying behind that or the reason behind that terminology is it's to imply that their blood runs different than our blood. And, you know, I hate to break it to them tonight, but it doesn't matter whether you were born with a silver spoon in your mouth or whether you were born into poverty. All of our blood runs the same. But not Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, He had different blood than you and I had. He had perfect blood. He had sinless blood. The Bible calls it innocent blood. Uh, The Bible says three times, actually it says many times, but three times uh, in a particular manner that He knew no sin and that in Him was no sin and that He did no sin. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was completely without sin. So I see it not only by His lineage, but I see it also by His life. Jesus Christ was noble in the way that He lived. In fact, we find Him to be the picture of nobility. He never committed a single sin. It wasn't just that He was born without a sin nature, but He never committed a sin. Do you realize that you and I, and I understand this is kind of a what-if statement, but even if we were born without a sin nature, we'd still be sinners by our actions. Every one of us has committed sin. And even if we had never committed sin, we'd still be sinners because of our sin nature. We can't get away from it. But Jesus Christ not only was born without a sin nature, but He lived a life without sin. He was truly the picture of nobility. But I think He's the Son of God not only because of His description, but because of His departure. It says that He went into a far country. Uh, Now, I don't know uh, how far that this nobleman went, but I know that the Son of God, uh, God incarnate, He went into a country so far that we can't go there through natural means. The Bible teaches in uh, the book of Acts, chapter number 1, that He was seen of above. 1 Corinthians 15 says He was seen of above of 500 brethren. He ascended up into heaven. The Bible teaches that uh, He that descended also ascended back up into heaven. Jesus Christ is not walking this earth in a physical 
physical manner anymore, not because He's dead, but because He has ascended up to the right hand of the Father. We don't have to wonder where Jesus Christ is today. We know where He is. He's at the right hand of the Father. So we see it because of His departure, but I think it also because of His design. What was He doing? The Bible says uh, there in verse number 12 that He went into a far country to do what? To do two things. The first was to receive for Himself a kingdom. Now, there's a lot of people don't understand this, but it's plain there in Scripture that Jesus Christ ascended up on high, received a kingdom for Himself, and there's coming a day when that kingdom is coming to this earth. And you say, well, why do you believe that? Because the King is coming to this earth. He's coming to set up a millennial kingdom, but when He ascended up into heaven, listen, on this earth He may have been scorned. On this earth He may have been hated. On this earth He may have been despised and rejected of men, and we esteemed Him not, and we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. But understand, when He entered into heaven, He entered in as a conquering king. He entered into a place where all reverence and all dignity was afforded to Him. And because He had paid the purchase price of our sin debt, because He had died for the nation of Israel and for their sins, He paid their national sin debt. He purchased their kingdom. It belongs to Him. But not only to receive a kingdom, but we see a second thing. He's left. Why did He leave? He left so He could come back. He left not only to receive a kingdom for Himself, but to return. Uh, the Bible says in John chapter 14, I go to repair, repair, or to repair a place for you. That's how it'd be if it was my place, wouldn't it? I go to prepare a place for you. He said, and if I go, I will come again. The Bible says in Acts chapter number 1 that this same Jesus uh, that ye have seen ascend into heaven shall in like manner uh, return. The Bible teaches that he may have gone, but he's coming back for us. If he loved us enough to die for us, why would we think he would leave us in this mess? And so this is the framework or the context to this parable. This nobleman has left and he's going to receive a kingdom for himself. He's coming back. And so in light of that, the Bible tells us that he did three things. And I want you to notice them very quickly. Notice first off the call of his servants. In verse 13, the Bible says, And he called ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. The first thing he did was he called some people. Can I say to you that to this day, God's still calling people into His service. It's interesting that it says He didn't, it does not say He went and purchased ten servants. You know why? Because He had already purchased them. This is not a question of whether He is deciding who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. These servants already belonged to Him. They were already in His service, but He was calling them to a specific task. So this is not talking about salvation when it says He called these ten servants. This is talking about commissioning them. And do you realize that each and every one of us, we may not be called into full-time ministry, we may not be called to be missionaries, we may not be called to give our life in its entirety in the of uh, 40 hours a week, or uh, usually it's 60 or 80 hours. We may not be called to do that, but we're all called to serve God. Every single one of us, we're called to do something. And if you're doing nothing, that means you're missing the calling that God's put on your life. Now, you may not be doing the same thing someone else is doing. You may not even be doing the same capacity of thing that someone else is doing. But we're all called to be doing something. God doesn't call any of us to sit on a bench and to do nothing for Him. We're all called to do something. And I want you to notice three things about this calling. Notice about these servants, first off, that they were elite. Now, uh, you know, maybe I'm being uh, using too much speculation or being too speculative, but 
I believe that probably there were more than ten servants, but these ten servants, out of all the servants, were called to see to their master's work and to his goods and to his household. Do you realize what a privilege it is to be called of God to do something for him? I mean, listen, the Bible calls us fellow laborers with God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Do you understand that most of the things that we do begrudgingly, Christ died on Calvary so that we could do them? Most of the things... Listen, I, I know, I mean, I, I know... Listen, I know that you've got me on a pedestal, and I know you think I'm perfect, right? Amen? Uh, hold down the gales of laughter while I preach. But I think sometimes we do look at uh, people in full-time ministry and think that they don't struggle with the same things that other people do. Can I tell you that my blanket's just as heavy as yours on Sunday morning? Can I tell you that sometimes I feel just as worn out as you do? And the fact is, some of the people, and I'm not implying that I'm on another level. On the contrary, I'm saying I'm on the exact same level. We all struggle with that. And sometimes it's difficult. And sometimes it's tough. And sometimes the burden gets heavy and the way gets rough. And we all struggle with serving God at times. I'm aware of that. But do you understand that those, those very things that, that God expects of us, and sometimes we look at it and say, I just don't feel like doing that. I just don't want to go. I just don't want to serve. I just don't want to tell them. I just don't want to do this. Do you realize what a privilege it is for God to even allow us to do those things? I mean, do you understand that the God of heaven chooses us to represent Him? Do you understand that the God of heaven, I mean, this nobleman has left the place that he's at, and he's leaving these servants there to represent him. God, listen, Christ has left this world in a physical presence. We are the representatives. We are the ambassadors for Christ. What a privilege that God, who is so holy, would entrust us to represent Him. What a privilege. We see that they are elite, but notice that they are not exclusive. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, there's ten of them. It wasn't just one. There's ten. And that tells me two things. That tells me, for one, uh, that the work is too big for one person. Do you realize it takes all of us to serve God? It doesn't just take one or two or a few. It took ten servants to see to this one household. And for you and I, the work of God, it's going to take more than just one or two. It's going to take all of us to do it. We all have a place. We all have a work. We all have a calling. And if we're missing those things, the body of Christ suffers. Every single one of us, we're not exclusive. It, it takes all of us. But I see also that uh, because we're not exclusive, we're also not alone. There's other people that are serving God and will serve God alongside of us. There's other people doing the work of God. People that can encourage you. People that can uplift you. People that when you go to stumble, they can catch you by the arm and say, you can do it. You can go on a little farther. The Master expects it. We're called to do this. We're not alone in serving God. One of the devil's chiefest tools is trapping Christians into feeling lonely in serving God. Uh, what did Elijah feel like when he was serving God? That was his big complaint. You see, there he is. He's up on the mountain. He's in the... Oh, man, that's a sermon in and of itself. He's on the mountain. He's in the presence of God. He's hearing the voice of God. And all he can focus on is that there's no one else around. He says, I'm the only one left, Lord. He wasn't rejoicing in the fact that God was using him. He wasn't rejoicing in the fact that he was on the mountain with God. He wasn't rejoicing in the fact that he was hearing the, uh, the Word of God and the voice of God. Instead, he was complaining that there was no one else up there with him. And he said, I'm the only one that's left. He said, there's no one left. I'm the only one. I'm the only one that cares, Lord. I'm the only one that's trying. 
And you know what God told him? He said, well, Elijah, that's awful sweet of you to think that, but do you know that there's, there is 700 that have not bowed the knee to Baal? I've got people serving and working. And sometimes it's easy to feel alone, but understand there's others with us. We see that they are elite. We see that they're not exclusive. But notice, thirdly, that they are entrusted. God is giving them something. Understand that the world may have ownership, but you and I, we only have stewardship. And that's not a lack of privilege. That just means what we've got is better than what they've got. You understand that the things that this world has, and we live in an entitlement society that believes they own everything, whether it's yours or theirs, it all belongs to them. And that's the society that we live in. Do you understand that the Christian worldview is the exact opposite of that? That there's nothing that we own. Every bit of it belongs to God. I mean, listen, I think we'd be a lot less selfish with our energy and time and our, our service, with our with whatever it is that God asks of us. We'd be a lot less selfish of it if we really felt like it belonged to Him. I mean, do you understand it? And, and I think we've kind of... I, I think that we live in a time where the camps are divided enough and where if you're going to go to a church like this, you probably already believe that your money belongs to God. I'm being honest with you now. I mean, I understand this is, we're going to record this, it'll wind up on the internet, and maybe somebody will sit and listen to it and go, huh? But I'm preaching to Walridge tonight. Most of the people that go here, I believe they probably believe that their money all belongs to God. But you know where we really struggle? We struggle with our time. And it's not all of us, but I'm sure there's some of us that struggle with our time. We believe it belongs to us. That it's ours to do with as we please. And understand that your time and your energies don't belong to you. You've been entrusted with those things. We see the call to the servants, but we see the command or the commission that's given to the servants. Notice what it says. It says, and he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds. Some of you said, well, that's, that's part of the reason I look the way I do, is the Lord's just entrusted me more than the rest of you. Amen? He's, he may have given you only ten t- pounds. He's given me twenty or thirty or forty. Amen? But... Uh, I want you to notice that God gave them some things. He commissioned them. There were some things entrusted to them. And I want you to notice three things about them. He gave them these ten pounds. Now, we know that those are monetary values. But I want you to notice, first off, that they are provided. They are provided. The servants are given everything that they need to do what needs to be done. Listen, the next time that the devil comes along beside you, and you know, when we start to complain, we never have to be alone when we complain because the devil will always show up when we start complaining. And he always wants to help us when we're complaining. And if we run out of stuff to complain about, he'll just slide up beside us and say, well, here's another thing to complain about. And next time that we're complaining, and next time we feel like, uh, like we just can't do it, next time that we start to whisper those words where we say, I don't have what it takes, understand that God's provided you everything that it takes to serve Him. Whether we serve God or not, whether we occupy till He comes, whether we do something for God is not dependent upon our ability. It's dependent upon our availability. It's not dependent upon our resources. It's dependent upon our uh, relinquishing our will and our life to Him. We have what it takes. Not because of who we are. Not because it's intrinsic to us. But because it's entrusted to us. God has given us what we need to serve Him. God will never ask you for what you can't do, except He enables you to do it. He will never ask you for what you don't have, except He gives it to you that you might give it back. God always, always equips us for the work that He calls us to do. We see that they're provided, but I would say also that they were precious. Now, again, I'm going to confess to you that I'm probably not the most learned person upon monetary values and the sliding scale of inflation during Bible times. 
But I assume that if he takes these ten servants and gives each of them ten pounds, or gives uh, ten pounds uh, betwixt them, that this money, be it ever so meager, was everything that he had and everything that it took to run his household. I mean, you can imagine, if you were to sit down and someone was to ask you, I want you to write out what it would cost to run your household over the next year, it'd probably be a pretty healthy sum. What if they then asked you to take all that money and to give it to someone and entrust it to them? It'd probably be very difficult to do. I believe that this money, whatever it would be in modern terms, was a precious amount. And understand that the things that God has entrusted us with are precious. They're valuable. This is what I was talking about at the beginning of the service. They're valuable. Our life is valuable. Our time is valuable. Our money is valuable. Not because, I mean, listen, some of you are saying it don't seem like it's so valuable anymore. I mean, it's valuable because God has entrusted it uh, to us. Our families are valuable. What are we going to do with what God has given us? Because there's coming a day when we'll have to answer for it. What are we going to do with it? Are we closer to God now than we were a year ago? Are we giving more to God now than we were a year ago? Are we serving Him more than we were a year ago? Are we more faithful today than we were a year ago? Where are we at in the grand scheme of things? Understand that the things that God has given us, they're not trifling things, but they're things that are valuable in the eyes of God. I could give you a list of things, and of course our life and our money and things like that, but I believe there's other things that God has given us. I believe He's given us His Word, and I believe His Word's valuable. I I believe that it's valuable. I I know that there are are men that have been burned at the stake so that we can handle, handle a Bible and hold it in our hands. It's valuable. We ought to treat it so. We ought to treat it precious. We ought to spend time in it. We ought We ought to treat it like it's the Word of God. I mean, I don't know how to put it much simpler than that. This book, we ought to treat it like it's the Word of God. If God was to walk into your house and say, I'd like to spend an evening talking with you. Most of you, if you hid everything you'd be ashamed of, you'd say, well, let's make time to do it. But so oftentimes, this book, this precious book, because we're so familiar, not with its insides, but with its outside, it sits on our shelf. We don't spend time, I'm guilty of it like you're guilty of it. We don't spend time in it like we are too. I believe the Word of God's precious. I believe the Spirit of God is precious. Isn't it ironic? <laughs> Isn't it ironic that the greatest gift that God ever gave to the New Testament church, the Spirit of God, which He purchased with His blood, that we treat Him as an intruder in our lives. He begins to speak to our hearts and we push Him away and we say, I'm not interested in what you've got to say. Now, I know you wouldn't utter those words either through your lips or through your mind. I understand that you wouldn't say that. But when we respond in disobedience, that's what we're telling Him. Your advice isn't wanted here. Your influence isn't wanted here. I believe the Spirit of God is precious. The Bible says that He is the earnest of the redemption. The earnest of the purchased possession until the redemption of it. He's the down payment on heaven. And so oftentimes we treat him as though he's a trifling thing. Listen, and, and, oh, I promise I'm not going to spend the rest of the night on this, but can I say the church is a precious thing? It's a precious thing. The Bible says that Christ loves the church, and he gave himself for it. And we treat the church as though it's an obligation, a burden. And I don't mean necessarily the, the scheduled service times. I don't necessarily mean the building itself. I mean, so many times we treat the people that way. We treat the God of church that way. It's just something to have to get through. 
instead of a privileged thing that God's enabled us to do and to be a part. We ought to value our church family. We ought to value the people around us. Understand we're knit together through the Spirit of God and through the blood of Christ. And you'll never have anybody with more camaraderie and more friendship and more love and more unity than your local church family. You ought to appreciate them. You ought to value them. I, as a pastor, ought to appreciate the church family. And we ought to show the church the respect that it deserves. Not because of the pastor, not because of the people, not because of the, uh, the leaders, not because of the properties, but because of the Christ that loved Himself and gave Himself for. If He loves it that much, we ought to love it that much. It ought to be precious to us. We see that they're precious. But notice the third thing. We see that they're productive. Now, we're not going to go through the whole parable. But what happens is that this nobleman entrusts these ten servants with this money. And he goes away, and when he comes back, he finds that uh, some of them, two of them, have, uh, have multiplied the investment that the nobleman gave. Well, we find another one he took, and he took what God had given him, and he buried it away and squandered. He wasted the time. Understand, he didn't waste the money. He wasted the time. You see, he couldn't do anything with the money. He refused to do something with the money. He didn't waste the money. He wasted the opportunity. He wasted the time. He wasted the chance to do something for his master. So he takes and he buries it. But the implication here is this. That this money, that these things, that the master has equipped his servants with, that if they're used in the right way, they can be multiplied and abound to the glory and profit of the master. Can I say to you that it still works serving God? It still works. The Word of God still works. The Spirit of God still works. The church house still works. It's still needed for our families. It's still needed for our loved ones. It's not an option. It's a need in our lives. And it still works and it's still productive. Look at our society in a tailspin of depravity. Look at our society. Every day, if you watch the news every day, every day you'll find something that will shock you more than what you saw the day before. Every day you'll see something more heinous, more atrocious. Well, what happened? What happened? Well, we find that uh, they took Bibles out of schools and put them in prisons, and we wonder why society's the way it is. They took prayer away from the schoolhouse. And I understand young people can still carry their Bibles and pray. But young people are not to be the ones that we're looking to for leadership. We should be leading the young people. We've taken, we've caused mass confusion in the church today with every Bible perversion in existence. For 400 years, the King James Bible was inspired, and then all of a sudden, in the 1900s, we decide it's not. That's silly. That's ludicrous. You go back 100 years ago, you know why you can't find any literature on the purity of the King James Bible about a hundred years ago? Because everybody believed it was pure a hundred years ago. It wasn't a discussion. It wasn't a debate. This whole idea that uh, you can go and pick what God says for you and for your family, and you can go through this buffet-style Bibles and buffet-style Christianity. This is a modern invention of depravity. This is not how it's been. And we've been brainwashed into believing it's the norm. I wonder what happened to society. Well, we don't have to wonder. Look around, you kick God out of things, how do you expect things to turn out? We find that these things are productive, they still work. We see the commission that's given. And I want you to notice finally the command 
that's given. And, I, and listen, I'd love to just preach and preach and preach and preach and preach, but don't get nervous, I'm not going to. I just want to give you these things very quickly. Notice the command that's given. What does he tell them to do? He says to occupy till I come. And I began to think about that word, occupy. And you know, uh, as with many words in the English language, uh, that word has different connotations. Uh, You can say occupy in one sentence and it means something different than occupy in another sentence. And so I thought about this word occupy or occupation. And there's three ideas that came to my mind. And this is how I think God expects us to live. Now, I mean, again, I'm going to be as plain as I can. I know I haven't done any backflips and I haven't ripped the microphone off. And I know this is boring, but, but listen carefully. I think God expects this of us. I think about the word occupation. I think of a servant. You see, most of us, we got to a certain age, and we went out, and we got ourselves an occupation. Or, what would we call it? A job. A job to do. An occupation can denote a work that needs to be done, or a job that is done for uh, remuneration. Someone's going to pay you to do it. I believe that we are to live as servants in this world. Do you understand that a servant is not there for his own pleasure, but for the pleasure of his master? Not there for his own ambitions, He's there to be a servant. He's there for the work that the Master has called him to do. Can I say that you can go through this world, you can go through your entire life, serve Jesus Christ, and die relatively unknown by this world's standards? Just like a servant can. But understand that while all the neighboring farms and all the neighboring uh, workplaces may not take notice of that servant, his Master always does. We've been called to do two things, to serve, to live for Christ, to work for Him. I understand we come to an age of retirement as far as our secular jobs, but understand that there's never a retirement age for serving God. Now, I understand that you get to a certain place in life, you can't do what you used to do. And I think that anybody with half a brain can understand that, but you never get to the place where you do nothing. You always do something for God. And I, I, you know the great tragedy that I see? The great tragedy that I see is not necessarily an older generation trying to retire. It's a younger generation trying to procrastinate. And it's not, listen, I see it all the way from from my age all the way up through uh, 30s and 40s and 50s. People that could be doing something that instead say, well, I'll do it at a later date. It's funny, tomorrow never comes. You know that? We better do it now. Jesus is coming back. We better serve Him now. Now's the time that we're given. They're given to serve, but also to succeed. A servant, one thing that servants don't have a lot of, if they're going to live for very long, was excuses. They were given a job and they were expected to do it. The devil always makes sure we have plenty of excuses. Me and Brother Richard were talking about that before church. That's one thing the devil will make sure you never... He won't provide you with much, but he'll always provide you with opportunities, temptations, and excuses. Always. And a servant that's full of excuses is of no use to his master. And I think Christians full of excuses are of no use to Jesus Christ. You say, preacher, that's unkind. No. No, what's unkind is for Christ to die for our sins and for us to give him nothing but excuses back. That's what's unkind. What's unkind is for him to do so much for us and us to do nothing for him. That's what's unkind. I want you to understand, he's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And it just, it just serves to reason that we try to give Him something back and to give Him our lives. They're given to serve and to succeed. But I thought, too, about the idea of occupy or occupation. And, you know, I think of a servant, but I also think of a sojourner. Someone that occupies a place is someone that inhabits 
a place or dwells in a place. And do you, do you know that the Bible calls us sojourners? The Bible says we're pilgrims and strangers in this world. I thought about the word citizen because it sounds good, but we're not citizens of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're sojourners. We're just travelers through this world that we live in. And basically a sojourner is going to have two things that he has to do in his sojourn. One of them is to inhabit. He's not a sojourner if he's not there. He's inhabiting a place. And do you understand that you and I, we do inhabit this world that we live in? Christ said, uh, when he was talking to his father, he said, I, I don't pray that you'd take him out of this world, but that you'd keep him from this world. We're going to live in this world. I'm not an isolationist. I'm a separatist. I don't believe we ought to live like the, uh, like the Catholic monks do and the hermits. They go and they, they hide themselves away in the hills to try to keep themselves from this world. That's why we've got the Spirit of God in us, is so that we can live in this world but not be of this world. We're going to live in this world. I'm not saying that to be a good Christian, you need to quit your job. I'm saying to be a good Christian, you need to be a good Christian on your job. I'm not saying to be a good Christian, you need to hide away from any family members you have that are unsaved. I'm saying you need to be a Christian in front of those family members that are unsaved. Because there's another thing a sojourner does. He influences. He influences. He inhabits a place, but he leaves his mark on that place through the way that he lives. It doesn't take much. You know, I know we live in a very eclectic world, and, you know, uh, ever since the last election, we're just on a different level, you know, morally in this world. I understand that, that now we live in a time where there's no bias and no racism, and there's, you know, no races, and evidently the whole world's just, you know, colorblind. Now, I understand that's what we're taught to believe. But the truth of the matter is this. There are still a lot of cultural boundaries in this world we live in. If you don't believe me, go up north and order sweet tea. Amen? They'll look at you like you walked out of a flying saucer. They don't understand. Uh, it, what's the sugar for? What, what do you, they'll bring you, they will bring you sugar and they will bring you tea. But I think it's against the law above the Mason-Dixon line to put them together. Uh, go up north and, and order grits. And they'll just stare at you. There's still a lot of cultural boundaries. And one thing's for sure. You travel someplace outside of where you've normally been, whether by your accent or whether by your appearance, it won't take long for people to notice that there's something different about you. And the problem is we've become so earthly-minded. You know, you've heard people say, well, don't become so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly use. Yeah, and let me tell you that that is absolute hogwash. The fact of the matter is, our problem is not being so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly use. Our problem is we're so earthly-minded that we're of no heavenly use. And if we'd start living for Christ and walking in the heavenlies that the book of Ephesians talks about and being seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, if we'd set our affection not on this world but on uh, the things above, for our life is hid with Christ, if we'd start doing that, we'd find we'd make an impact in this world. People would see the influence of our life. People ought to look at you and know there's something different. People ought to talk to you and know there's something different about you. We're trying to listen. We're trying to convince people to put their faith in a Christ to save them that we don't want him to change us. Let me say that again. It come out backwards. We are trying to convince people to put their faith in a Christ so that he can change them when we don't want to let that same Christ change us. Do you get me? We're trying to look at the drunkard and say God can change you from being a drunkard when we don't want that same Christ to change us from being worldly. And then we wonder why we have no impact with people. 
Let me tell you what, let me tell you what catches a sinner's attention. When you look at him and say, let me tell you what I used to be, but what the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ did in my life and how he changed me. But the problem is we look at them and we say, if you believe in Christ, you can be just like me. And they look at us and they say, well, I'm already just like you. What do I need Christ for? We're supposed to influence those around us. And then finally, I thought about the word occupation. And you know what I thought about? I thought about so many of the wars that we've had. And there's what they call a military occupation. Now, in a lot of ways, I think military occupation has been the worst thing to happen to warfare. Because now that, that's a way of kind of going in and fighting a war without winning a war. But, but there's a few things that you do in a military occupation. The design of a military occupation is not necessarily to annihilate that native people group, but it's to live amongst them and to do two things. One is to represent the government that has sent you. Again, we come back to this idea of being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. We're representatives. There's a reason that the military plasters flags on everything that they make. They want people to know what government they're representing. And I think you and I, occupying till Jesus comes... I think we ought to live in such a way that people know where they can go to to get help from the Lord. Listen, if you live like a Christian in your work environment, it won't be long before you'll have people coming to you and saying, can you pray for me? Can you pray for my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife? And it may be small things. It may be insignificant things. But they know when they need someone to pray, you're the one they want to go to. You know why? You've been wearing that flag on your arm. You've been wearing that flag on your chest. Not a physical or visible flag, but you've been living like a Christian. And they know you represent somebody. But then there's a final thing. Not only to represent, but to regulate. Now, I'm not saying that we need to become the uh, police in our work environment. But what I am saying is this. One of the jobs of an occupying army is to keep things under control while they're there. You know, the Bible talks in the book of Second Thessalonians about the removal of the Spirit of God in this world during the tribulation period. And I personally believe, you can believe something different if you wish, but I believe the reason that the influence of the Holy Spirit is removed is because the church is removed during the tribulation period. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Bible teaches in Revelation chapter 4, what happens? John, he hears a voice saying, come up hither, and he comes up hither. Well, who was John? John's picture of the church. He's raptured out. And the Bible says, uh, only he who letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. That's talking about the Spirit of God. Do you understand that if it wasn't for the Christians in this world, there's no telling where we'd be. There's no telling where we'd be. And the church is weak in the way that it represents itself. But if it wasn't for that representation, this entire world would be into degradation and apostasy quicker than you can even imagine. We ought to live in such a way that it convicts people that aren't living for Jesus Christ. We try to do a lot with our mouth that we could be doing with our life. You you know, we try to to correct everybody with our lips when if we live like a Christian in front of them, it'd produce a change in them. And I believe you and I, I believe Jesus has given us a work to do till He comes. We're not just to be doing nothing. We're all to be doing something for Him.